Welcome to Screen Thoughts with Hollister and O'Toole. Hey there, Hollister. It's O'Toole. And as you, better than anyone know, we were recently at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York City. We looked out the window and we could see that gorgeous building, the Apthorpe, where Nora Ephron had once lived. Yes. And I turned to you and said, we should do a podcast tribute to Nora Ephron. So here to start us off is the late, great Nora Ephron herself reading from her book, I Remember Nothing. I was not at Woodstock, but I might as well have been because I wouldn't remember it anyway. (laughs) On some level, my life has been wasted on me. After all, if I can't remember it, who can? I would put When Harry Met Sally in one of the 10 great movies of the 20th century. Men and women can't be friends because no man can be friends with a woman that he finds attractive. He always wants to have sex with her. So you're saying that a man can be friends with a woman he finds unattractive? No, you pretty much want to nail him, too. And I'm going to be 40. <laughs> when? <laughs> Someday. In eight years. It's not the same for men. Charlie Chaplin had babies when he was 73. <laughs> yeah, but he was too old to pick them up. It's about a very interesting subject, which is not can men and women be friends, but really the difference between men and women. Actually, we're just saying the things that maybe people always did say, but it just hadn't been nailed in a movie yet. Do I believe in fate? I, or do I believe in destiny? Yeah, I always say I believe in, in, in it in movies. Nora, of course, was part of an enormous writing dynasty. So both her parents were screenwriters. They wrote um, films such as There's No Business Like Show Business that starred Ethel Merman, Marilyn Monroe, and Donald There's O'Connor. There's No Business Like Show Business. Carousel from the 1950s. Desk Set that starred Katherine Hepburn and Spencer Tracy. Nora Ephron said when she and her sisters were little, if they came down the stairs and poked their heads through the railing, all of a sudden they would see that in a scene in a Hollywood movie where Natalie Wood would be doing the same thing. And, you know, from the time they were born, everything they did might end up in a screenplay since both her parents were writers. And all four of their daughters, so Nora Ephron and her three sisters, became writers. If you went to my mother and you said, oh, the worst thing happened to me today, she had no interest in it. She only wanted to hear about it when you had turned it into a story with a good punchline. And so she always said, everything is copy. Everything is material. Someday this will be a funny story. It doesn't seem funny now, but trust me, someday it will be funny. It's this thing I always think that is a basic lesson of comedy, which is that if you slip on a banana peel, people laugh at you. But if you tell them you slipped on a banana peel, It's your joke. And Nora herself was married to three writers. Her first husband was a novelist. Her second husband, of course, was Carl Bernstein, who uh, was one of the journalists who uncovered the Watergate scandal and wrote about it in All the President's Men. And her third and last husband, Nicholas Pileggi, he wrote Goodfellas. What a diverse body of work she leaves behind. Uh, She died in her 70s and didn't tell anyone she was dying. Very few people knew she was sick. There are a lot of Nora Ephron fans out there that just had a collective gasp when we suddenly realized that she was taken from us too soon. Something that I found very poignant was Delia Ephron, who wrote The Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants. She said that living on a planet without Nora was like living in a place where the street signs were missing. And she, of course, had never known life without her older sister. And I thought that was a 
a very touching way to put it. Oh my God, I think that's one of the most amazing things you could ever say about anybody. But for my generation of women, Nora Ephron was to romantic comedy what Sorkin is to, uh, you know, to snappy dialogue. You know, I always say that there are two traditions of romantic comedy. There's the Christian tradition and the Jewish tradition, if you will. In the Christian tradition, there is a genuine obstacle. How many times do I have to tell you? We're just friends. In what you'd have to say, the sort of Jewish tradition pioneered by Woody Allen, the basic obstacle is the neurosis of the male character. It's just always nice if things are in New York, especially if things are about neurotic verbal people. And I said, Arthur, you see that girl? I'm going to marry her. And two weeks later, we were married. They were how we met stories. The story of how my parents met is in there. He was a head counselor at the boys' camp, and I was a head counselor at the girls' camp. She just made romantic comedy mainstream. She really did. I'm saying that the right man for you might be out there right now, and if you don't grab him, someone else will, and you'll have to spend the rest of your life knowing that someone else is married to your husband. What I want to say about When Harry Met Sally is I think of all her works, that one will stand the test of time as the strongest piece of writing. And the reason that I think it is so strong is that Rob Reiner approached Nora Ephron to write the script. Rob Reiner, of course, directed When Harry Met Sally. I'd like the chef salad, please, with the oil and vinegar on the side and the apple pie a la mode. We were sitting around ordering lunch, and I ordered lunch in the usual way that I order lunch which is a sort of nightmare. But I'd like the pie heated, and I don't want the ice cream on top. I want it on the side, and I like strawberry instead of vanilla if you have it. If not, then no ice cream, just whipped cream, but only if it's real. If it's out of a can, then nothing. That would happen. I mean, we would go out to lunch, and I see her ordering like this. I said, you never order anything off the menu. What? You don't just say, I'll have the so-and-so. There's always modifiers every time. You're asking the guy to change. It came on this, but I wanted that. Could you just do this? And you, could you put this on the side? And could you just make it and leave that off? I said, this is hysterical. And she didn't, wasn't even aware that she was doing that. And I said, this has to be in the movie. Here's what I want. Regular tomato juice, fill it up about three quarters, then add a splash of Bloody Mary mix, just a splash, and a little piece of lime, but on the side. I was on an airplane coming back from Europe, and the stewardess came around with the menu, and I started asking her if she could do things, and she looked at me and she said, have you ever seen When Harry Met Sally? I think that's why it was so good, is that it was equally represented the male voice and the female voice. So they spent weeks together where Nora Ephron um, and Meg Ryan would put in things from the female point of view, and Billy Crystal, who was Rob Reiner's best friend, and Rob Reiner, who was recently divorced from Penny Marshall, they put in things from the male point of view. So unlike many modern-day romantic comedies where it's skewed too much towards one gender or the other, it's a very balanced representation. You are a human affront to all women, and I am a woman. After we then decided this was what we were going to do, I then debriefed them. And, and they told me all the things you hope no one will ever tell you. Go back to her place, you have sex, and the minute you're finished, you know what goes through your mind? How long do I have to lie here and hold her before I can get up and go home? Is 30 seconds enough? If you're a woman and you sort of think you'd like to know what men think and then they tell you and then you think, gosh, I wish I didn't know that. It was just one thing after another and I just took notes on it. What they said became what Harry says in the scene and what I said became what Sally says. And so at any woman in her right mind, women are very practical. The first time I really saw Nora Ephron as somebody in film 
was when she did the film about her breakup, Heartburn. I don't believe in marriage. Neither do I. Now, you sent to me recently the story behind Mike Nichols directing Heartburn. And do you remember who was originally slotted to play Carl Bernstein? He was replaced um, by Jack Nicholson. Oh, wait. was I think it was a better cast. Was it? Was it um, okay, Serpico? Okay, I'm going to give you a clue. <laughs> Homeland. Mandy Patinkin? Yes, Mandy Patinkin was supposed to play Carl Bernstein. My Mandy Patinkin? Your oh Mandy my goodness. Patinkin. He would have been better. He would have been better in that role. But you know who would have been best in that role is Dustin Hoffman. Dustin Hoffman would have been great, who had already played Carl Bernstein in All the President's Men. Yeah, you're right. You're so right. Harper was miscast. And I remember being, by the way, when I read the book, I, I was, I, I think I read it in a week and I couldn't put it down, but it was not you know, an uplifting book. It was a very, it's really a very tragic story, but she just writes it so well that you can stomach it really brilliantly. But, um, but also she said uh, in an interview that I read, she had this great quote that when Carl and I were in the middle of breaking up and we were still together and he had fallen in love with the wife of a British ambassador, her husband, who was a very, very important political human being called me. He said, I think we should get together. And I said, yes, we must. And I asked him where we should get together. And he said, someplace out of the way. And I said, but we're not having the affair. They are. Anyway, we settled on a Chinese restaurant on Connecticut Avenue. And when we met in front of the restaurant, we fell into each other's arms weeping. I was pregnant and it was so horrible. And he said, and I said, oh, Peter, isn't it awful? And he said, yes, it's just awful. What's happening to this country? And, you know, I didn't stop crying, but I thought, oh, that's hilarious. I knew someday I would use it, and it's in heartburn. The point is, it doesn't mean I wasn't a complete basket case, but if you are a writer, that is what you do. That is what your life is for, to feed the animal. Nora Ephron wrote or directed three films that starred Meryl Streep, and they are... Uh, Silkwood? Yep. By the way, a great piece of writing, and not funny. Um, not funny, no. And she co yeah. she co-wrote that with Alice Arlen. Um. Oh, a heartburn. That's right. Okay. And the and third one would be. Oh my goodness! Oh my goodness! For which Meryl Streep was nominated for yet so another I, I mean, Oscar. So I got two of the three. What's the third? Julie and Julia, the most recent. Oh my God! How could I? Have, of course, of course. But of I just course, wanted to play this clip of Nora Ephron fetting Meryl Streep at the American Film Institute, which I just thought was one of the funniest things I've ever seen. Ladies and gentlemen, Nora Ephron. I loved working with Meryl Streep. First, I worked with her on Silkwood. Alice Arlen and I did a script for her. Meryl did Karen Silkwood and the Polish person and the Danish person, blah, blah, blah. But the true stretch, if I do say so, was playing me in Heartburn. I highly recommend having Meryl Streep play you. If your husband is cheating on you with a car hop, get Meryl to play you. You will feel much better. If you get rear-ended in a parking lot, have Meryl Streep play you. If the dingo eats your baby, call Meryl. 
She plays all of us better than we play ourselves, although it's a little depressing knowing that if you went to audition to play yourself, you would lose out to her. <laughs> Some days, when I'm having a hard day, I call up Meryl and she'll come and she'll step in for me. She's so good, people don't really notice. I call her at the end of the day and find out how I did, and inevitably, it's one of the best days I've ever had. It's great. So while Meryl Streep was in three Nora Ephron movies, Meg Ryan was actually in four. Every woman who, you know, went to New York to find their space and place could relate to some pieces of Meg Ryan and when Harry met Sally. The day I graduated from college, which is the day this movie begins for Sally, I drove to New York and thought, is anything ever going to become of me? The story of my life isn't even gonna get us out of Chicago. I mean, nothing's happened to me yet. That's why I'm going to New York. I think when you're 21 years old, I think you really think you know the answer. You have a plan and life is gonna work out in a certain way. Well, have a nice life. You too. And then life intervenes and things don't work out the way you want and you are softened or humbled. Now, I do think that it was really brilliantly written and I think it was brilliantly conceived. Um, but as she said, that when people see her work, nobody says, oh my God, she's the only one who could have written that. So she always felt that her writing was not so unique unto itself, but it was just relatable to everybody. And I think I've sort of felt the same way. Well, I think she definitely had a very strong voice and was known for her candor. So her writing seemed very accessible. And she often voiced thoughts um, almost in an Irma Bombeck yes, fashion. Yes, yes. Maybe she's right. It's not that she had great original ideas. She just knew how to tell the story in the way we all experience it, that we could touch the story, you know, being outside of it, but feel like we were in it. She was definitely very observational. Yes. Maybe that brilliantly said. Yeah. Again, the candor with which she spoke. So I think she came across as a person, not unlike Dorothy Parker, who came out with some really wonderful one-liners. The main thing you learn from failure is that it is entirely possible you will have another. <laughs> one thing she did brilliantly is she always paid homage to some of the great works that came out of the golden era of Hollywood, and she worked them into her scripts to add to the backbone. So, for example, in When Harry Met Sally, Billy Crystal and Meg Ryan throughout the film are debating the plotline of Casablanca whether she should have run off with Humphrey Bogart or stayed with Victor Laszlo. In Sleepless in Seattle, do you remember the golden era Hollywood movie that they're referring to in that one? It, it takes place in the Empire. I forget the name of the film, but yes. Yep, um, An Affair to Remember with Cary Grant. Yes, An Affair to Card. Remember, exactly. And then even in You've Got Mail, that plot was based on an old movie which was set in Prague called The Shop Around the Corner. They did um, it through letters, exactly. I'll say this too. She was also very good at taking the cute meat and putting a twist on it. So for example, in When Harry Met Sally, Billy Crystal and Meg Ryan, they meet, they become unlikely friends, then they get together. In Sleepless in Seattle, Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks are on different coasts, so they don't meet, but they fall for each other. It's you. It's me. I saw you in the street. Are you Annie? Yes. 
And then, and you've got male, they do meet in real life. They can't stand each other, but they've also met online, not knowing that they have. So she was good at always finding that different way into a romantic comedy. Right. And that's true. I read an interview that someone did with her and the interviewee said, um, I came to the conclusion that your two greatest skills are that you elevate the minute to make it interesting and you ground the tragic to make it relatable. I feel those are the hallmarks of your voice. There's a lot of, uh, of truth to, you know, to experiencing the minute uh, and making it interesting. I think she, I think she did do that really well. And she was able to write with no filter. I think it's the hardest thing to do because it means you have to write without any care for how anyone's going to receive it. And it's very hard to do as a writer. It definitely is. So Nora Ephron, she was never nominated for an Oscar for directing, but she was nominated three times um, for best writing screenplay written directly for the screen. And those three movies were... Oh gosh, Silkwood was one? That's right. Okay, Silkwood, when Harry met Nith- the movie that brought a share. Okay. Uh-huh. Well, I know. Who, by the way, everybody would, you know, everybody's like, really? You're putting her in? But she was fabulous. When Cher Harry was met fabulous. Sally? When Harry okay, met Sally, let me, that was and let me two. think of the third. She was a co writer. You've got mail? Actually, she was a co writer on all of these. Nope. Um, Julie and Julia? Nope. Sleepless in Seattle. Yes. Yeah. Ding, okay, ding, good. ding, ding, ding. So shared with David Ward and Jeff Arch. Yes, as well it should be. I think you're the one who gave me the original screenplay for um, Sleepless in Seattle. Yeah. Now, I mean, you're better to speak to this, and you're much kinder than me, so probably <laughs> best to have you explain it. But the screenplay really when I read what you sent me was pretty much the screenplay that was put out there and she wouldn't let his name be on it. And didn't he fight to get it on? And again, Sorkin is also somebody who's sort of criticized by it's always got his name on it, not necessarily the other writers involved. And we have to be careful not to put people on pedestals, but to recognize their genius. It's funny. She was concerned later in life that um, she had told all the stories she had to tell and that she was, she was repeating things. Mm -hmm. And um, that was a concern of hers. And by the way, I mean, you see it, you see that same thing in Sorkin's work. If you look at uh, the West Wing and there's so many similarities to things he's layered in into um, newsroom. One of Nora Ephron's greatest strengths was writing about her other true love, which was food. And she was the first to say that she could spend hours and hours and hours obsessed over what she was going to eat and where she was going to eat and if the restaurant would be open. And she has written hilarious essays about how she spent a year of her life trying to track down a strudel. In Julie and Julia, Meryl Streep did such a good job playing Julia Child. Shouldn't I find something to do? What is it that you really like to do? Eat. And we are so good at it. Look at you. Now, growing in front of you. No, for me, it was the cast. Stanley Tucci, are you kidding? He was so amazing. I love Stanley Tucci. For me, the one thing that she wrote that didn't sort of fit into everything was Michael. I never got it. I never got Michael. That was a movie, I got to say, I went because Nora Ephron directed it. I, you know, I wouldn't have gone because John Travolta was starring in it. And certainly John Travolta playing an angel in an overcoat just wasn't my thing. And yet, when you look at the box office gross, her works as a writer, Michael comes in number three. Well, also, but that's because it was John Travolta at his height. Or at least after his comeback. Well, yeah, he was dancing in it. Not to the level of Grease, but I think there's just something wrong in the world when Michael does better at the box office than Julian. (laughs) Now, also, do you think it's odd that she didn't tell her closest friends? I mean, I understood that she didn't tell the world she was sick because there was concern that she couldn't get the insurance she would need for a couple of the projects she was working on. 
particularly the play she was doing on Broadway. But to not tell your closest of friends, her son, I read an article where he was calling the friends the day before she died and apologizing that they didn't know. Um, You know, what is that about? That kind of thing has got to be a very personal decision. And even though I never met Nora Ephron, I remember being shocked that she died because she was someone, through her work, she always seemed so accessible. And it almost seemed as though she belonged to moviegoers everywhere. Um, And I don't know, I'm just guessing here, but when I look at how productive she was in the last six years of her life when she was battling a form of leukemia, she managed to write a hundred blog posts, two books, two plays, and directed a movie. And maybe if she had come out and publicly announced that she had leukemia, it could have dried up her productivity as well. Oh, that's interesting. And what you're saying is that her public persona was almost more important to her than um, than her own personal needs and friendships. Or maybe her product, her art product, where as a writer, maybe that's what trumped everything. You know, another Nora Ephron quote is she was always beseeching people to be the heroine in their own life story, not the victim. And maybe she thought she could beat it. Maybe she thought it would make her view herself as a victim and not as a heroine. Jacob is calling people two days before she's dying saying, my mother wants you to speak at the memorial. And they didn't know she was sick. See, she directed until the very exactly. end. She directed and right. she cast it exactly. until the very Now, end. by the way, um, the piece that I read, which I think is worth a read if you have time, is going to the New York Times. It's by Jacob Bernstein, her son, and it's called Nora Ephron's Final Act. She was very disciplined in her work and in her writing, and she certainly paved the way for other women who were coming up to say you can do whatever you want. And for men as well, because she was responsible eight months after her own death for Tom Hanks's Broadway debut. He starred in Lucky Guy, which was a play she had written about a journalist. Her son Jacob talks about Lucky Guy in this piece that he wrote, saying that it's about this guy who's dying and how he dies. And he felt one of the reasons she wanted to write it was because it mirrored how she wanted to approach it. It's interesting because if you look back on the writing that she did in the last years of her life, it seems as though um, she was making no secret of the fact that she was ill. So she came up with lists of things that she would miss and she wouldn't miss. And even when she talked about hair and hair maintenance, she said that certainly it seemed like one of the upsides of death was that you no longer have to worry about your hair color. Okay. I have a question for you, O'Toole. A couple questions. Okay. Okay. All right, get ready now. Again, you're only allowed one word answers. I don't want any caveats, okay? Okay, that's going to be got, hard for me, but I'm going to okay, try. Okay. You've got mail or sleepless in Seattle? Sleepless in Seattle. Really? Yes, okay. hands down. Mm-hmm. I think, I don't know. I like them both equally. I'm not sure I could actually say that. Um, okay, Julia or Julie? Julia. Course, right? Um, that's a stupid I question. I love Amy Adams, but I know, I know, I know. I thought she was given a thankless task in that movie, and I thought it seemed as though they wanted her to be the cute Meg Ryan character from When Harry Met Sally. Okay, ready? Here's my here's my last of my three questions. In Silkwood, Cher or Meryl Streep? Meryl Streep. Oh my God, I'd take Cher. You've got to. You, you want to rethink that? Okay, then. Alrighty then. <laughs> and of course, I remember Kurt Russell in that movie. I know. By the way, you could fall in love with them in that movie. Yes, you could. Yeah. Yes, you could. She definitely was was uh, very driven in her um, in her desire to be the best, and you know, self disciplined in her work and everything that she did. 
know, she had, the, the woman had guts, you know, she had guts. And she definitely, at a time when it was not easy to do, uh, was able to pull together a lot of pretty incredible things. To get eight feature-length films, um, to to direct eight out of Hollywood, to have 16 writing credits, you have to know your business. She really did open a lot of doors. And Tribeca Film Festival, of course, is named a prize in her honor. So she lives on. Someday I wish on a star and wake up where the clouds are far behind me. We're signing off here, but we just wanted to end this tribute in Nora Ephron's own words. This is Nora Ephron. I feel bad about my neck. Many years ago, when Gloria Steinem turned 40, someone complimented her on how remarkably young she looked. And she replied, This is what 40 looks like. It was a great line, and I wish I'd said it. This is what 40 looks like led inevitably to its most significant corollary. 40 is the new 30, which led to many other corollaries. 50 is the new 40, 60 is the new 50, and even restaurants are the new theater, focaccia is the new quiche, etc., Anyway, here's the point. There's a reason why 40, 50, and 60 don't look the way they used to, and it's not because of feminism or better living through exercise. It's because of hair dye. In the 1950s, only 7% of American women dyed their hair. Today, there are parts of Manhattan and Los Angeles where there are no gray-haired women at all. Once, some years ago, I went to Le Cirque, a well-known New York restaurant, to a lunch in honor of a woman named Jean Harris who had just that week been released from 12 years in prison for murdering her diet doctor boyfriend, and she was the only woman in the restaurant with gray hair. Hair dye has changed everything, but it almost never gets the credit. It's the most powerful weapon older women have against the youth culture, And because it actually succeeds at stopping the clock, at least where your hair color is concerned, it makes women open to far more drastic procedures like facelifts. I can make a case that it's at least partly responsible for the number of women entering and managing to stay in the job market in middle and late middle age, as well as for all sorts of fashion trends. For example, it's one of the reasons women don't wear hats anymore and it's entirely the reason that everyone I know has a closet full of black clothes. Think about it. Fifty years ago, women of a certain age almost never wore black. Black was for widows, specifically for Italian war widows, and even Gloria Steinem might concede that the average Italian war widow made you believe that 60 was the new 75. If you have gray hair, black makes you look not just older, but sadder. But black looks great on older women with dark hair. So great, in fact, that even younger women with dark hair now wear black. Even blondes wear black. Even women in L.A. wear black. Most everyone wears black except for anchor women, United States senators, and residents of Texas. And I feel really bad for them. I mean, black makes your life so much simpler. Everything matches black, especially 
black. But back to hair dye. I began having my hair dyed about 15 years ago, and for many years I was categorized by my colorist as a single-process customer. Whatever was being done to me, which I honestly have no idea how to describe, did not involve peroxide and therefore took only 90 minutes every six weeks or so. Whenever I complained about how long it took, I was told that I was lucky I wasn't blonde. Where hair dye is concerned, being blonde is practically a career. Oh, the poor blondes. They were sitting there at the colorists when I arrived, and they were still sitting there when I left. Their scalps were sectioned off and dotted with little aluminum foil packets. They had to sit under hair dryers. They complained bitterly about their dry and damaged hair and their chronic split ends. I felt superior to them in every way. For the first time in my life, it seemed there was an advantage to being a brunette. But then, about a year ago, my colorist gave me several highlights as a present. Highlights, you probably know, are little episodes of blondness that are scattered about your head. They involve peroxide. They extend the length of time involved in hair dyeing from unbearable to unendurable. As I sat in the chair, waiting for my highlights to sink in, I was bored witless. Hours passed. I couldn't imagine why I had been conned into agreeing to this free trial. I vowed that I would never, ever even be tempted to have highlights again, much less to pay money for them. They are, in addition to being time-consuming, wildly expensive, naturally. But you will probably not be surprised to hear this. Those highlights were a little like that first sip of Brandy Alexander that Lee Remick drank in days of wine and roses. I emerged onto Madison Avenue with four tiny, virtually invisible, blondish streaks in my hair and was so thrilled and overwhelmed by the change in my appearance that I honestly thought that when I came home, my husband wouldn't recognize me. As it happened, he didn't even notice I'd done anything to myself. But it didn't matter. From that moment on, I was hooked. As a result, my hair dyeing habit now takes at least three hours every six weeks or so, and because my hair colorist is, in her world, only slightly less famous than Hillary Clinton, it costs more per year than my first automobile. I'll have what she's having. 